Welcome to episode 74 of The People on k 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. On this episode, our guests are Ryan Tabor and Katie Grennan. Ryan Tabor is an artist and a furniture maker living and working in Los Angeles. He currently has a show of new sculptural works at the Torrance Art Museum in Torrance, California. He also runs the Wood Program at Cal State University, Long Beach. Uh, you know, this work is not like historical revisionism. It's not even historiographic. It's really about sort of stitching these relations to think about speculative narrativity or like aspects of narrative structures that rely on these gaps or these glitches or these spaces to be able to generate some sort of cohesion. Katie Grennan is an artist who lives and works in Los Angeles. She's had solo shows at the Hammer Museum here in L.A. and also at the Whitney in New York. And recently, she was included in the show People at Deitch Projects Los Angeles. She has a show coming up at Los Angeles Municipal Art Gallery opening May 19th for recipients of the 2019 City of Los Angeles Individual Artist Fellowship. She teaches in the sculpture program at Cal State University Long Beach and is currently represented by the gallery Commonwealth and Council. I mean, I'm interested in different ontological states and um, maybe dying being one of them in, in a way. And so like the hairs between dying, dreaming, meditating, all of all of those sort of states. Um, and, and the desert is a place where, you know, it can be this really, really magical experience or you can also have this feeling that it's really threatening to you. And at the end of the show, we'll hear a song from Toronto band, Tough Age. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. Ryan Tabor and Katie Grennan, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. So, Ryan, you have a show at the Torrance Art Museum called Erratic Geometries, a Grammar of Period Furniture and Periodic Eversion. What's up with that show? (laughs) Uh, It's a a show of uh, five sculptural works that uh, have been made over the course of the last two years, two or three years. But basically, there there are five different works that are all referencing furniture or uh, decorative objects from uh, different periods of... uh, American furniture design. So that ranges from the Federalist period or the Sheraton period, and then it goes all the way forward through um, Brazilian modernism. I know. Do you want to talk about the um, sailors' valentines to start? Oh, please. My favorite thing. (laughs) Okay, okay. Well, uh, a couple of the works are looking at the the history of um, this this tradition, which is uh, a tradition of making decorative uh, shell placards uh, by, by, uh, or mosaic plaques by collecting seashells and then arranging them uh, into, these, into these decorative framed objects. And the tradition actually starts in the uh, early 19th century in England. Uh, and this is uh, a sort of a byproduct of this surplus of seashells that are coming back from Southeast Asia along routes from the silk trade. And they begin to be traded in England as just sort of a, another form of uh, you know, inexpensive exotica. Uh, and these were the shells that were being collected uh, and used for uh, natural history collections, uh, you know, for hobbyist natural historians, as we were witnessing the rise of, of natural history as a discipline. Uh, but then, and that was primarily gendered. That was sort of a, a, a traditionally, or it was primarily a male activity. Um, but at the same time, there was also this, this practice that was uh, primarily practiced by women, which was using these shells to, um, to create these super detailed models or representations of different species of flora. So there would be these placards that are actually using these shells that have these patterns of growth coded into their actual physiology, and they would arrange the shells to actually mimic or model the growth patterns of a different species, like a specific flower. And I'll say that whatever you're listening to this on right now, Google Sailor's Valentine. There's plenty of great images of them, of various types of them on the internet, and they're fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's a really, really, really long, complicated history of these traditions and aesthetics moving across um, different cultures and being kind of um, rehistoricized with different narratives. 
which is something that I was really kind of fascinated by. So, uh, you know, it's, it starts in England, and for about 50 years, this is this sort of decorative hobby. And then at, at some point, um, a, an entrepreneur in Barbados uh, realizes that there are a ton of shelves in Barbados and a ton of really cheap labor. So it kind of reduces the complexity of the design down to these really simple geometric forms that exist in octagons. And, uh, and he hires a bunch of local people to build these frames and, uh, and then to actually arrange these shells. And then he sets up a shop underneath a rum bar and starts selling these to sailors as they're passing through Barbados for resupplying. For resupplying. And uh, they, uh, they take them home and these become gifts for their loved ones. Uh, so it's basically like the early equivalent of like an airport tchotchke, right? And uh, these, these, you know, these become really, really popular. They're, all, they're disseminated all over Europe and all over specifically the U.S. on the eastern seaboard. And then after about, you know, 25, 30 years, this sort of falls out of favor. And then as that generation dies, they disappear into attics and basements. And then like, you know, 30 years later, when those are getting cleaned out, they resurface. And there's this new secondary market that's developed where they're sold as these, um, as these objects that were actually made by the sailors on like the ships. Like that's the new mythology, the new romantic mythology that comes up around them, right? Yeah. Where it's not as disgustingly tied to colonialism as it actually is, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. This mythology actually becomes sort of a business model. And there's romanticism tied to that that seems, I mean, so it erases all the labor and then it becomes this really romantic thing that's all about this sort of mythological journey and gift. Absolutely. Absolutely. The romance of the age of, of sea exploration. And, right, and right. Discovery, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and in sort of re reestablishing a new narrative around kind of what those participants, in this case, the sailors were actually, you know, participating in through this language of romance, then, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a narrative that starts to, to erase, you know, systematic violence that's been tied to that entire colonial history. I'm curious too about your, there's a distance built into the way that you make them too. And, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit also. Um, Cause they're, they're sort of 3d printed, like your hands a little bit. Yeah. As, removed. as, as removed as possible. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, there are all kinds of issues. I was really interested in these objects and I really wanted to explore this tradition and realize some, some sculptures. Um, but I, I was, you know, really, really reticent about making one around trying to actually make a historical replica or, uh, or simulating the labor or reenacting the labor. Uh, and also there are all kinds of contemporary issues that have come up around the ethics of shell collection. So, I mean, even, even just looking at like, you know, the, what that would mean in terms of being a contemporary ecological gesture, it was, I just it was somewhere I didn't want to go. So, um, so instead, I decided that what I should probably do is just collect a single shell of each species and then try and figure out a way to actually, you know, replicate those shells. In this case, it was scanning them with 3D scanning equipment. And then I would just sort of do that one by one, one shell at a time, and uh, which is way more labor intensive than building one, I learned. Like I spent probably <laughs> twice the hours doing this as it would have taken for like me to do it as an actual Sailor's Valentine for the first time. Right. You know, not like someone that's really good at it. Like <laughs> it was insane. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I collected these and it got really, really weird really quick because at first, you know, I wasn't sure exactly how I wanted to proceed. And I started looking for specific species of shells because it had to have some, at first I thought it had to have some sort of um, fidelity in terms of its referentiality. It had to, it, you know, it had to be tied to the actual historical precedent without modeling it exactly so uh but i started looking for these shells and i found out that like a lot of them are not available anymore primarily because there's no market for shells that small in those species so in some cases the species are extinct at this point but in a lot of cases you just you can't buy them they don't exist as a commodity right this is similar to the thing that was going on with birds and bird feathers kind of same time right with yeah feathers being popular in ladies hats and yeah. Them being collected to death, literally. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 And uh, so, so I wound up having to, like, 
trade shells or buy shells from collectors that have collections from that they had kind of built in the 1970s, 1960s. Uh, and it was it was fascinating. I found all kinds of people that were really excited that uh, that I was interested in this. And they were very happy, especially for one shell. They were very happy to give me or sell me a shell. I met a lot of really, really interesting, really generous people. Uh, but so that's how I amassed the collection. And then as I got going, uh, I got a, my 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 uh, I, I got a little I got a little bit looser in terms of uh, how I was going about you know setting up the parameters of, of the species collection. And then uh, you know uh, there were a couple trips to like shell shops at the beach because I needed something that was a certain color. Yeah. And then like the price tags on them looked awesome. So from from there it just kind of like spiraled out of control, and it was uh, it, you know it it sort of uh, it took a, a hard right from from the actual historical precedent. Um, but yeah, so they were each scanned. Each species was scanned, and then the shells were all manipulated digitally. And then they were assembled in a program to actually create something that is this surface. It was just sort of a smooth modeled surface made out of a bunch of shells that have been seamed together digitally. And um, they were based on the actual layouts that had been designed by this guy, B.H. Belgrave, who was the, the entrepreneur in, in Barbados. Uh, and then they were, they were 3D printed through a full color gypsum printing process. Um, so yeah, the hand, you know, is, is basically completely remo- removed in terms of the labor. Well, what about the, I know that you replicated the labor of the woodwork because the woodwork on these things, they're octagonal. Is that correct? Yeah. They're yeah. octagonal. You replicated the woodwork of the frame frame. Yeah. So the frames, that's, that's one thing that I didn't actually build those frames. So, and there's, yeah, I did, I did not build those two frames. I, um, I, I fit the, I, I, I framed them. Um, and, I and I did some of the, I actually did do some of the detail carving on them, but, but I didn't actually build them. I actually, um, I had a, a assistance with fabrication on those two frames. Um, but, but, uh, and also there's a display stand that holds one up that I also did not fabricate, but that is not, uh, that was not actually a, a historical object from that period. That was that is a, it's from somewhere in between. It's a stand that was built by someone who collected one of those in Massachusetts, I believe. At some point, I found it through like a secondhand collector who, who had bought a sailor's valentine in that stand that had been built for it after the sailor had brought it back. So it's, it's, it's a really weird kind of collection of like different skill levels, different materials. It, like, you know, the, the, this historical object that's now being traded is, uh, you know, it's iterative. It has, like, all of these different people's authorship kind of written into it. And different levels of, like, authenticity, I'm doing air quotes, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's tough. That's right. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, we could, yeah. Say that. We could say that. We could say that. And I'm interested in the way that you sort of mash narratives together Maybe you adhere to a certain period more with the George the Third staircase desk. Oh, I think you're talking about a colonial aversion, the metamorphic library stairs of King George the Third, Temperance, and the Voluptuary. That's exactly what I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the title. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a lot. Uh, you know, part of part of the title is a reference to um, the title of a couple of illustrations by. Um, the characterist James Gilray of that period, who was, you know, famous basically for skewering King George III uh, through his caricatures. Uh, he kind of rose to, to celebrity status through 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 those works. But the um, that piece is uh, it's that's it's 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 interesting because each one of these pieces they all function very differently, uh, and the working methodologies and the the approach to all of them are quite different. Um, so the sailors' valentines. Uh, you know, they're, they're, um, they're really based on this historical form and they, they hold the same scale. Uh, but then there's this, uh, shift in the actual production methodology and these digital technologies remove the hand with this piece with the King George III, I actually, you know, built all of that by hand. So that was actually trying to replicate, um, period woodworking and, uh, metalworking from the late 18th century. Uh, from an illustration, from like an eight by eight illustration uh, in a cabinet maker's pattern book. So it was just sort of like trying to trying to research joinery and working methods from those periods, and then um, just staring at a single image for 
I don't know, like hours and hours trying to trying to visual cognitively map like how this thing would have been built. So how how faithful do you think you were able to get to the original, or how or what what of that what part of that was important to you? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, well this was I think you know the you know, the title of the show referencing um, period furniture. Uh, you know, period furniture is this practice of people building furniture, trying to adhere to either specific aesthetics or styles from a different period in time, or in some cases, actually the working methodologies. Like I am, I'm literally going to use a foot powered machine to carve this, you know, uh, maybe dressed in period garb, you know, <laughs> in some cases. So um, that's a, that's a real thing. Um, yeah. So did you try the period garb? I, on? Yeah, I just <laughs> wanted to imagine you yeah. in the outfit, really, more than anything. I, yeah, I probably would have had to wear a different period, or maybe maybe like a dragon costume. Yeah, or an yeah. astronaut. Yeah, an astronaut. Whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I mean, I, I really wanted to, uh, I mean, for that piece, I was just trying to th- see if it would be possible or how close I could um, replicate a historical object from an illustration of that object that was disseminated hundreds of years ago. Um, but, but but replicating the labor on a, the King George desk, like that's like obviously, I mean, the reason you, you were, you felt comfortable doing that is because it's a lot less problematic than you representing the labor or re- representing or representing the labor of uh, women in Barbados, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I mean that. Well, that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, I definitely that. And again, these were kind of made at different. Like the uh, the the King George the Third table. Uh, you know, I started working on that uh, a year and a half before I started even researching the Sailors' Valentines. That took, and it was it was it was shown in a different exhibition, uh, in a very very different context. So uh, you know, and and the way that piece, I was actually kind of invited or commissioned to make a piece for an exhibition uh, at the LA Arboretum. So that piece actually started from like the actual uh, sort of physical materiality of the wood. They had a, a tree that had fallen down and they gave me the tree to make something out of. And the species of tree had this incredibly complex history uh, that led me directly to George III's library desk. The bastard. The bastard mahogany. Bastard mahogany. It's uh, Eucalyptus boitroides. Which is um, yeah, it's a it's a, a a type of eucalyptus tree that was uh, that grew around Sydney and was actually written about by uh, Sheraton in letters back to the Crown as a resource that England should take advantage of for furniture making wood uh, on on his on his trip to uh, to Australia. So uh, it's so that's where that started. Can you talk a little bit about George the Third and his sort of character? Because it, it's so interesting with the desk that, I mean, literally the stairway is embedded in the desk, cl- like closed off or like kept in secret. And then it sort of opens up into this sort of weird aspirational gesture of this stairwell to this sky or something yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but George the third seems really like like his character seems so built into that yeah yeah I mean George the third's character and specifically this was you know this was at the very end of his of his of his time we're leading into the Regency period so he was he was on the edge of, of losing his sanity and being removed from power and having his um, his son step in as the priest, prince regent who was you know kind of a disaster at that point you know was was like not not uh not really holding up the same ethics and ideals that that george the third thought were representative of 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 the crown uh i guess uh, but <laughs> so george the third i mean george the third is is uh the third george and this is sort of the period <laughs> 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 I'm gonna stick with that. I'm gonna stick with that. I'm gonna do that one again. We'll edit out me almost doing a spit take. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you know, George III is kind of the he's the uh, the culminating monarch in in the rise of the of the English Empire to the primary colonial power in the world. His rule marks a period uh, where the colonial power had been completely established, and um, it also marks uh, a shift. I think in um, in the history of of the uh, British Empire, 
after, you know, as we move from George III through the Regents period into George IV, we're moving into Pax Britannia, which is a period where where Britain is still the most powerful nation in the world. Um, but things are shifting. Things are different. So so he sort of marks this period that is, you know, from the, the, the rise of colonialism and through the Enlightenment period, and, uh, and he, he sort of embodies a certain, he's the, he's the last king that embodies a certain ethic uh, that begins to be, that begins to deteriorate. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find us here on K-Chung every third Sunday at 3 PM. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio or anywhere else where you get your podcasts. And you can find us at insertblancpress.net by clicking on The People at the top of the page. And we have an Instagram. Uh, it's the underscore people underscore radio. So go there and check us out. And now back to our conversation with Ryan Tabor and Katie Grennan. So, so Ryan, um, the George the Third table is has a really interesting relationship to scale. Um, in relationship to who he was as a character, I think you sort of chose the scaling aptly. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the the, the table's built at uh, somewhere between sixty nine and seventy percent, which is passing ish. Uh, but, you know, this was sort of in response to uh, a lot of period furniture makers who build pieces that have been scaled down to make them slightly more difficult to make, uh, to demonstrate, you know, a great prowess or skill. Um, but but I use scale shift a lot in a lot of these works and languages of scale modeling to establish some degree of critical distance in relation to the reference so that uh, so it's easier to kind of establish a critical dialogue around their place in history. But I'm I'm really interested in, in the way that uh, that scale plays as a formal vehicle in your work as well. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Well, one example of that is the five seconds of dreaming piece, or some of the work that was at Commonwealth and Council that used the desert, which is really vast, and the desert is a space of projection, and it kind of can swallow you up. You can really feel sort of decentered or distanced from that, and I was interested in that in terms of relationship to nature, um, and sort of almost nature made strange. But you can also sort of anthropomorphize the desert, and it sort of feels body like. And so I was sort of thinking about anthropomorphizing, making it sort of seem like a body, um, and then at the same time you could zoom out and it could sort of swallow you up. And I was thinking about that also with the space of the brain and this space of interiority and then this sort of like electrical field that sort of the EEG reads your brain waves, but it also sort of like current sort of runs, you know, it runs electricity, it runs everything. So um, things were sort of flipping between like objects and sort of interior and exterior space. And there was a lot of sort of scaling in terms of your positioning um, or my position, subject position also like sort of being embedded in the desert and then sort of being sort of also outside. And I like that as the dream is kind of like that. Two, you can kind of have these multiple subject positions where you're sort of inside and outside and sort of watching yourself. And I, I like that about it. And at Commonwealth and Council, there was one piece in particular that was very striking. And I, I thought the show in 2018, it's a year ago, but I I, I saw that show right after, uh, I think, seeing Made in L.A. And then I, mm-hmm. I swear it was up at the same time. And um, there's the one piece that was... Uh, the EEG, the five seconds of uh, your dreaming brainwave, turned into this physical representation um, that looked almost like a geode cracked open and mm-hmm. turned into this, you know, uh, I don't. It, it's like a graph, you know, it's like the needle of uh, your brainwaves flying around, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. This, can you describe that piece just a little bit sure. and tell us like what what that that scope going from, you know, this this this. Uh, diagram of the brainwave to this physical object? I guess in 2015, I went to Texas um, and to this, um, it is the lab, it's got a, it's got a hefty name, Um, (laughs) the lab for non-invasive brain to machine interface systems. And it's at the University of Houston and it's run by Dr. 
Jose Contreras Vidal. And he um, he was very great and, and, and nice and, and was interested in working with artists, was willing to do this sleep study, which he never was atypical of the lab. Um, but they hooked me up to a sort of 64-channel EEG apparatus, and then I slept um, overnight there. Um, and it, so they, they gave me eight hours of data. And then from that, I selected, I asked for the delta waves, the waves that are active during sleep. Um, and when you're dreaming specifically? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it, it's supposed to be the waves that are sort of, the most active during that time and and so then I extracted five seconds from that and it was pretty random it's not like that that's the moment when you dreamt of the yellow tower on the green hill or something right I had no idea just five seconds yeah and I was interested in that that it sort of obfuscated the kind of sensory feeling of dreaming or any of the sort of thoughts like it's that's not that's not there. Yeah. Um, and so then from that, I sort of took this information and I realized it mimicked a landscape. It also mimicked sound waves and um, and then put that into Blender and started to sort of build this landscape that sort of mimicked the desert, which I thought was the sort of space of projection um, and also Topanga Canyon where I live part-time um and I drive through the canyon all the time and so it's just this sort of emblematic landscape for me and that one did a really weird thing when I was making it where I 3d printed it then um then molded it and then the material aggregate that I used to um mold it actually like cracked it was like building an earthquake it kept like sort of like cracking and fissuring and it felt like this kind and warping all of that was sort of unexpected so I felt like I was wrestling with this thing for about a year Mm. it became really psychological so it became this landscape it had this sort of model scale but and and it felt cave-like when you went Mm. into it or just from the things that were holding it up but then um but then it also felt sort of like this psychological kind of break like this types of speeds that happen in the landscape and in geology you could really feel and it and it is really fragile and precarious i love this idea of of mapping consciousness into the into the landscape or over the landscape or thinking about it as a way of actually embodying experience or knowledge into a into a material into a into a physical material i feel like that 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 seems to be a strategy that you've used in a couple of your works or something that you're really interested in. I mean, another material that I was really interested in was borax um, and sort of the um, crystallization of borax because um, crystals are sort of self-organizing things, like they sort of remember their own math and and borax um, happens in Death Valley um, and it happens from the sort of extreme heating and cooling and so the crystals grow from those sort of extreme climate shifts also that like things sort of melting. Um, all of the figures were also sort of using material from the from the desert um, and so, so the bodies themselves were embedded with um, the landscape, and that was really important to me. Um, and so there were things that were like had the landscape embedded in it, and then I was sort of like doing this sort of homespun like borax growing. And the and the the box for the borax has the twenty mule, 20 mule team, team. Yeah. yeah thing from the desert and so it, it was mined there there were all these sort of aspects of death valley that i was really interested in sort of bringing you know that i mean the desert can be so many different things but it can kill you too you know <laughs> can i <laughs> ask are you, are you from out here no i'm from virginia okay i was just checking because we're because a lot of uh, the work of ryan's that we've been talking about is very New England, where I know he's from, mm-hmm. and and I'm also not from here. But that engagement with the desert, also being from the East Coast myself, like I I hear what you're saying, and I was just curious whether that's something uh, that you encountered, you encountered like later in life, and it's not something you grew up with, right? Totally. Right. Yeah. The Commonwealth and Council show one of the pieces that I did where I sort of melted this um, body-like landscape thing that I 
took on my back like that it was 115 um when we did that and and so it melted itself <laughs> yeah no it melted in the sun it, it, it really melted from the elements and so um, I don't know. That's that might be a rambling answer to the sort of materiality question, no, but I took either. I mean, there's just something like for well, everyone here except for Matt, who's from the Midwest. But um, <laughs> but yeah, that that it's an intoxicating thing to witness the desert for the first time if you haven't grown up with it. So that's why I asked. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you're and all of most of the work that I've seen of yours is like it's it's very deserty and very California. Even the 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 dream things, they look like a cutaway of like some description on the news about like the San Andreas fault. Mm-hmm. Right, know? right. And I, I guess I like to this, I mean, I'm interested in different ontological states and um, maybe dying being one of them in, in a way. And so like the hairs between dying, dreaming, meditating, all of all of those sort of states. Um, and, and the desert is a place where, you know, it can be this really, really magical experience, or you can also have this feeling that it's really threatening to you. Totally. And I don't want to harp on regionalism too mm-hmm. much, but it yeah. seems relevant here. Whereas like if you're from the East Coast, where uh, if you wander off, like you could probably live for a couple of days before you starve to death or whatever to come out here and to look at the desert for the first time as an adult and say like, oh, yeah, I'd be uh, you're dead and you're dead. You're dead in eight hours. Like, yeah. And yeah. that is a, that's a crazy thing to think about, you know. It's a yeah. sublime experience. Yeah, a sublime yeah. experience. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. You're listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on Instagram at the underscore people underscore radio. And you can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. And you can also find us anywhere else where you get your podcasts. And now we're going to return to Ryan Tabor talking with Katie Grennan about her astrology orchestra project, which you can find out more about by going to katiegrennan.com and clicking on Astrology Orchestra under Multi-Site Projects. Yeah, it'd really help if you check it out while you listen to them discuss it. Uh, We're also going to discuss one of Ryan's pieces from his show at the Torrance Art Museum. And you can see images of that piece, uh, of one of the pieces there, and find out more about the show at the Torrance Art Museum website. I love that through this sort of performance, you're actually kind of establishing a condition that can collapse like an actual corporeal experience with uh, sort of a cerebral experience of like a diagrammatic space. Yeah, they were all based on these charts. And I think that's part of your work as, as well. Like I, I think, um, you know, for instance, the King George table like that, that was sort of built off of this um, drawing. Sure, yeah, drawing out of a pattern book, you know, that was literally like a book for cabinet makers. In, in, in case you have a client that wants a King George III table, right. you know. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it was, it was interesting. It was interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that that space, you know, trying to kind of negotiate these spaces between diagrammatic space, theoretical space, and then sort of embodied um, corporeal space is really interesting in in materials through different sculptural languages, and I think both of us are are thinking through certain ideas related to those through languages of, for instance, like scale modeling. I mean, I think of that in your work in particular, like especially with the the Tony Smith stove, for instance. Like, that's a really interesting, um, you know, to think about like the bat cave, for instance, and like mm-hmm. the scale scaling of that, and and then to think about that like stove as a sort of, I mean, you tell this story about Tony Smith that I think is really interesting, where he was like just in this room with a stove. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's actually a accurate as I understand it biographically is that you know Tony Smith as well as. Um, Wilhelm Lund, some of the other people that, that I was referencing their biographies in this show, uh, you know, they all suffered from tuberculosis, so consumption. Uh, and uh, But Tony Smith, yeah, Tony Smith uh, had tuberculosis from elementary school on. And for, I, I don't remember how many years, but I think it's until high school, uh, rather than actually sending him off for treatment, his father built a shack in the backyard and he lived in a shack in the backyard. And because they were worried about contamination, there was nothing in there except a cot and a wood stove. So that was, 
that was his childhood experience. I mean, that was just so compelling and fascinating to me. I mean, it's like a, it's like Tom Hanks in Castaway or something. He's <laughs> in there identifying with this cast iron stove through these formative, you know, d- cognitive developmental years. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I just couldn't help but but think that maybe that what was, you know, that that experience was what was driving this search through abstraction, you know, this search through these sort of like these these abstract spaces and geometric forms, like trying to find some sort of habitable space where he could establish some sort of identity as a maker, or you know, develop a, an identity as an author, having moved through three or four disciplines trying to find success professionally over the course of his entire life before he started making those objects in his late 50s uh, or 50s, I think. I'm not sure about that. But that around sounds there. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was older. And he was old. He was yeah. an older gentleman when he, when he found success sculpturally. But I love the, the idea that he was in this room sort of thinking about these geometries. I, I don't know, this weird stove. That does seem really formative and... In, in thinking about abstraction in that way, like um, the diagrammatic or sort of thinking about how these ideas are embodied materially or like like the cast iron stove and then this sort of like abstract logic. Like that's a really heavy manifestation of abstraction. Yeah. <laughs> or of that well, sort I mean, of diagrammatic you're, you're, space. You're, you're making a material object out of a dreamscape. Yeah. I think it's a conundrum from living in the time that we live now. Like, we're so, the more and more, like, disembodied everything gets and the more, I mean, I think about it in terms of, like, a computer space, too, in a lot of ways, or, like, the Mm -hmm. way that we deal with images and Mm -hmm. the way that those images sort of disconnect from our bodies and, and then trying to kind of bring that, to some sort of um, back to some sort of and our generation's kind of interesting that we we live in because we're kind of in between. Absolutely, we, we kind yeah. of like lived before computers. Yes, and, dear and listener, <laughs> everyone at this table is old. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> we were we were born without the internet, and it came right. it came about. In our youth, so we're sort of transitional. We're we're sort of a transitional generation, and I think that like want to sort of translate something that's really disembodied or something that's really like um, intangible into something really physical is it comes out of that in some ways. Uh, absolutely. I mean, when we were talking about thinking about Tony Smith, it was like uh, you know at that point in history, it was sort of the reverse. You know, in the 1950s and 60s, is about moving moving through these materials into these spaces that are pure abstraction or that are, you know, right, completely right. theoretical. And and now, I mean, we have people who are, you know, surviving by selling handmade beaded objects on Instagram and Etsy. I mean, it's just like this complete complete return to this this longing for a connection to materiality or to like applied skill or craft or the ability to relate to physical materials in a way that's meaningful. I mean, I think sometimes the question is like taking this, you know, for example, the dream, the five seconds of dreaming and turning it into this physical object. Like we learn something about the state of our minds through that process, even if it's not like the typical linear fashion of learning, right? By actually thinking about it. I mean, I'm guessing you as an artist thinking about it, turning it into this object, you're giving us some kind of learning process, I hope, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope so too, but it's probably not, yeah, it's not, it's definitely not what... It's not algebra. Yeah, it's not what that data... It's actually a lot more complicated. Yeah, it's not <laughs> It's not what the data sort of um, teaches you. Um, and the data can't really show... Yeah, it's more unknowable, right? Yeah, yeah. And I like, I mean, I think both of us are interested in this. This kind of speculative space or the Mm -hmm. space of sort of probability um, that, um, I mean, one reason I'm interested in the brain is that, like, there's no theory of the brain. Like, there's no, as an object, it's really interesting um, and how it, I mean, it's really weird to, like, think about the gray matter of the brain mm-hmm. as an object and then 
And I don't feel any sort of relationship to, like, if I saw my gray matter, I'm sure I would not feel a connection to that as, like, that's my brain. Love you. I think that one similarity between our working methodologies is that um, there's there's some sort of relationship between the way that you use diagrammatic space and then some of the interest that I have in um, in narrative structures that that actually drive the relationships between the different historical content and precedents that I'm thinking through or building relationships mm-hmm. between. But a large part of that is absolutely speculative. Uh, you know, this work is not historical revisionism. It's not even historiographic. It's really about sort of stitching these relations to think about speculative narrativity or like aspects of narrative structures that rely on these gaps or these glitches or these spaces to be able to generate some sort of cohesion. Right, right, right. I mean, I think in particular in your work, things like the sloth pelvis being mashed up (laughs) with um, the um, Brasilica like chair, like that... Sure. I mean that's sure. a that's a real mashup and and that and that does seem sort of like a speculative space and the idea that you would be sitting on this pelvis and this sort of stance also that that would comport your body into I think is all sort of part of that that work like it's 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 also that that object itself sort of comports the, your gesture in a, in a sense too as as much as it like it also sort of shifts your I, ideology or like it's it, I mean sitting on that sloth yeah. is, is, is really sort of like that's a that's an ideological and also the the Brasilica model like as a sort of nationalist sort of emblem oh, yeah. um, but also utopian yeah well gesture. And I'll- Break that down, just like cliff notes, real quick. Sloth pelvis, yeah, like three, two, Brazil. one. Brazil, yeah. yeah so the, the the piece is basically comprised of three formal elements that are all existing in the same space. One, there's a concrete panel that the sculpture sits on that's in the pedestal, which is a model of part of the National Gallery in Brasilia that was designed as part of the Brazilian initiative by Oscar Oscar Niemeyer. So it's one of the most iconic buildings in Brasilia. Uh, I think it's supposed to be a breast. I mean, that's what it looks like. It looks like something out of the Jetsons, but uh, a lot of Niemeyer sketches are of naked female forms. It's, yeah. Um, and then uh, on top of that is uh, my favorite furniture piece, my favorite modernist furniture piece, which is um, Sergio Rodriguez's Petrola Mole chair, or the Petrola Mole, which is a 1954 chair that was designed as part of, he was sort of involved, he was a karaoke that was involved in the Bossa Nova movement. He was around, and it's literally designed to change the posture of the person that experiences it. So it was designed basically for like laying in to smoke weed so it was it's it it kind of an amazing gesture yeah. to to change or reassess ergonomics uh, you know in the middle of of high modernism it's a it's a wild object um so we got that but then uh the 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 actual model is not fully uh, assembled because there's one element or one part that has been introduced which is a scale model of a Pleistine ground sloth pelvis, uh, the uh, Megatherium americanum, uh, which was a, a, a giant herbivorous land sloth that was alive during the Pleistine, um, which we don't don't really have time, but it it, it is an it's got they're its, adorable. Look them up. They're adorable. Yeah, yeah. yeah, look them up. But but specifically, it's tied into the entire history of uh, American nationalist identity, and specifically through a correspondence between uh, Cuvier and Thomas Jefferson, where they're like... Where he sent a moose over to Europe. Is that correct? Well, yeah. there's like, a, it's a whole, yeah. it goes on and on. But yeah, it was all about like America. America is great because we also have these giant beasts, right? Big, bigger. Right. And it's all, yeah, I mean, it's all an analog for military superiority. Like the inti- all of this conversation. Do you want to go on another hour talking about this? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm down for that. Right, we won't do sorry. that. I'm, I'm yeah, so yeah. sorry. <laughs> but, this, but the stance, I mean, the, 
versus the sort of aspirational King mm. George, the like recline, it seems like cerebral logic of the Tony Smith shaker stove. Like those objects seem to like, they each sort of seem to engage the the body and spirit in very, very different ways, you know, uh, like, or like. Absolutely. I mean, both in terms of like how that object would, would function culturally and socially, but then also even just thinking through the labor associated with its production. Right. I mean, thinking about the labor in a shaker workshop versus the labor in a cabinet shop uh, in the, you know, the, the Prince Regent's cabinet shop for King James III or, or the, you know, the labor in Rio in a production furniture facility in the 1950s. I mean, it's really kind of interesting to think about like how those different acts of making and those different gestures are embodied by different political and social ideologies. Yeah, and then I think about your hats that you're wearing too. The, 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 just um, in that it seems like you have to switch hats um, w- w- tackling each of these objects to some degree. I, tr- I do my best. When, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a struggle. I mean, that's 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 one of the most difficult parts. That's one of the most difficult aspects of of designing projects in my practice. I think. Well, let's wrap it up on a difficult problem. Uh, Ryan, it. Katie, thank you so thank much you for guys. joining. Yeah. Thanks for having. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> thank you guys so much. You've been listening to the People on K Chung, sixteen thirty a.m. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. We're also on Instagram at the underscore people underscore radio. So check us out there. You can also find us anywhere else where you get your podcasts. And our interstitial music, as always, is Ockfifth by Lewis Keller. And you're hearing it right now. And it's it's pretty great. I'd Big say. ups. Yeah. We're going to go out with a track from Toronto band Tough Age from their album Shame released on Mint Records in October 2017. And you can buy the album on vinyl or on cassette and even compact disc or CD. That's a CD. Yeah, it's for the minivan. They have a show coming up at the Baby G on June 26th in Toronto, Ontario. And the name of the track is Unclean.
to 